Very Bad Wizards is a podcast with a philosopher, my dad, and psychologist, Dave Pizarro, having an informal discussion about issues in science and ethics. Please note that the discussion contains bad words that I'm not allowed to say, and knowing my dad, some very inappropriate jokes. I don't follow your math, but I'm moved by your passion. Go on. Welcome to Very Bad Wizards. I'm Tamler Summers from the University of Houston. Dave and Paul, we're going to talk about a serious man today. Is that the most Jew movie you've ever seen? <laughs> All right, let's have Paul answer that first. <laughs> it, it is the Jewiest movie in the world. It is not a movie about Jews. It is not a movie told from perspective of Jews. It is above and beyond. It is... S- it is filled with Jewishness. It is pure Jew. It is pure. And, and we'll get to talk about this, but I was uh, doing reading what people had to say about the movie, and some people were not pleased. It is not a flattering picture of our people. I saw I, I saw that uh that in your in your detailed secondary literature bibliography. Uh <laughs> I read the abstract of one of them. Yeah, same here. <laughs> um yeah, point complaining about uh, about the depiction of Jews. I used to uh, hold Fiddler on the Roof in in the highest uh regard <laughs> in terms of my anthropological knowledge of your people. Um and this this you know, I, when you ask, is it the Jewish? I, I don't know because I, you know, what is my standard? This is certainly some a depiction of Jews, so I don't know what it means to be uh, a very, very Jewish, except for that everybody who plays somebody on this movie has been a guest star on either Curb Your Enthusiasm <laughs> or the Larry Sanders show. <laughs> yeah. And, uh, so by the process of induction, I I have concluded that this must be <laughs> truly. Although I don't want to throw Sephardics under the bus. You know, I mean, I don't think anybody. <laughs> yeah, it's, it's Ashkenazi Jews. It's Ashkenazi, but yeah. I, I, I did not read the, your secondary literature or even the abstract, Paul, but I don't think it's an... I disagree that it's an unflattering portrayal of Jewishness. Um, the, the sebaceous cysts. <laughs> uh, we will well, we will talk about that. We'll talk uh, about this in, in in the second segment. But I find uh, it very offensive that you do not think that of that as an unflattering <laughs> depiction of, Jew, of Jewish life. Well, again, it's not the the people in it necessarily. Like when I suggested that it was the most Jew movie, it is like you said, Paul. It is like. It's not just that the people and the creators, the Cohen brothers are Jewish. The movie is like undiluted just in terms of its themes and in terms of its, uh, yeah, just the way the movie carries itself. 
is there's just <laughs> there's something about it that it just exudes Jew. Yes. But not in a bad way as I as I see it. But we, we can that can be discussed. All right. First opening segment, though, what are we gonna talk about? Paul you fired off to us an email that might be described as a rant. Oh no, it was like an essay. It's an essay. It's a it's a polished essay. A polemic. But written like you know, Jack Kerouac wrote on the road, just <laughs> without stopping. I may have not been entirely sober as I wrote it. <laughs> Possibly, yes. Same with Jack Kerouac. So, and a lot of it was about our episode that we just had with Yoel on the Yarconi paper. But it seemed like a lot of it was also focused on the two episodes uh, that Yoel and Mickey did recently one on the arconi paper and one on against experiments that that episode so i'll just turn it over to you what did you think of all of this so i gotta say i loved your episode i i listened to it closely your episode with yoel um it is a sophisticated really interesting discussion of some important issues in our field and just it was it, it was rich i went back i, I read the original arconi article i read uh, daniel lackin's i think very trenchant response and and it was just it's just really important and interesting and deep. And this can this continues the theme that you guys have been doing, as well as the two psychologists, four beers crew. And I have thoughts on this. I have a lot of sympathy for the claim that we overblow our, our findings, not just in our titles, but everywhere, and we should be better behaved. But I also think, and I think Daniel Atkins puts it very nicely, that a lot of our very narrow specific studies, when done right, zoom in on specific hypotheses and they're like science at their best and we could pursue that. But what I really wanted to take off on, what I really got into was you two to various proportions as well as um, I, uh, Mickey, Mickey Inslet and, and Yoel Inbar have been really on about the idea that psychologists should maybe tone down on experiments and start doing descriptions of the world, start looking at the world and just describing things. And this idea seems to me to be utterly insane. It is so insane that I have to figure out people are saying something different. So on the one hand, you can't be saying that psychologists should stand in street corners and write little descriptions as people walk by. You can't be saying that. You can't be saying they go to playgrounds and, and you know, tell stories about the kids that they see. For one thing, um, who would read that crap? For another, journalists and novelists do it so much better. You can be saying, okay, journalists and office, but we'll use numbers. So we'll count how many red-haired kids run by and we'll count how many people with hats come by and so on. Because who cares about that either? Now, what you might be saying is that you'll do observational studies as a way to test focused, complicated, unintuitive hypotheses. Like um, to speak to some research that's been done, uh, I think Yoel has been involved in. You might look at the relationship between word, Twitter, what people say in Twitter about disgust, disgusting terms, and whether that correlates with flu season and physical illness. That to me is terrific. That's great science. But that's the sort of cool stuff which doesn't seem so different from a cool specific experiment. You, you know, uh, Tamler was on about this before. You know, you, you, you have a theory. Your theory predicts something which nobody else would have predicted, and you go look for it. I'm happy with that. But now you're very far away from the hippy-dippy Paul Rosen sort of thing. Let's look at the world. So I can see no case at all that psychologists should move to any form of unbiased description because 
Who cares? I, okay, before Tamler jumps in with what is certainly a more extreme defense than mine, because I feel like I'm somewhere in the middle, will you allow me, Tamler, to first Absolutely. give uh, the, the my yes. position? Okay, so I find myself both agreeing with what you're saying, Paul, but thinking that you at least have misunderstood what I meant by descriptive research, which... By analogy, I've always, in a, an attempt to be intellectual, have pointed to the the work that, um, what's his name, the, the amateur astronomer collected with the guy with the gold nose, Tycho Brahe, uh, systematic detailed observation that doesn't need to be guided by a prior hypothesis about the world. Now, you might say, well, that's, you know, the the what's what's constrained nicely there is what he's looking at. Like when you're looking at just the motion of stars, you are essentially testing, you know, doing an experiment. Um, But, but I say to you as a proud, uh, you as a proud cognitive developmentalist, this is the the kind of observation that I mean, isn't like, you know, I observed my clothes that were spinning in the dish in, in the lawn in the dryer and i realized life is is nothing but you know a, a, a dream like that you get in these postmodern uh, uh, journals what i mean is actual systematic observation so you do go to a playground you do have trained uh, observers who are writing down things like um how many times kids uh, engage in play with two or more, or how many times they're playing uh, by themselves and how old they are. And there, I, I think the most charitable view of what we were saying is that this is a way to derive hypotheses that, um, that would at least be in tune with how the real world works. And, I, and so the part that, I, that surprises me is that as a proud cognitive developmentalist, you would think that all of Piaget's work was shit because what he was doing was systematically observing, you know, his kids and developing theories from that. Well, I make a distinction. I, sometimes you teach, you know, one teaches, one teaches a developmental psychology course as an assignment. You send the students off to do exactly what you're saying, which is go to a playground, observe kids and write things down and everything. And then they bring back their papers, but no one's ever going to read their papers because there's going to be nothing of value in them. So you look to make sure it, for the formatting and everything. So because who cares? I mean, you put that in a journal. No, say, no, no. But to be fair, you could also send a kid to do a seventh grade chemistry experiment and write it up. And no one's going to read that. But that doesn't mean the chemical experiment thing is wrong. Right. You know, like I, I guess what I'm saying is I don't I, if somebody comes to a playground and watches the kids, I don't care what they have to say. I mean, unless they're a novelist or a journalist with incredibly clever insight. But here's the distinction. And here's maybe where we agree. I think sometimes observation of the world, careful, intelligent, open-minded observation world, can lead to great hypotheses. You might notice something really cool, but, but that's where the work starts to get done. I mean, I, I wouldn't object to a psychologist who is totally stuck on a research program, spending some time in a prison, to start to say, I wonder what, what I could think of, what I could, how I could apply psychology to some cool ideas. But I wouldn't want to read what that person wrote about being in a prison just because there's such already such a wealth of great prison literature done by people far <laughs> oh, the prison literature <laughs> far more done by people who are far more astute observers, far better writers than psychologists. So before Tamler jumps in, I think that Tamler <laughs> no, I'm sorry, Tamler, but I, I to be fair, I think that Tamler wasn't saying, and this is why I want you to jump in, wasn't saying anything other than maybe they should read some more of those novels before they start going out into the world. Oh, I think that's I, I, then I would agree. 
Well, I'm going to I say something a little more than that. Um, so a couple of things, Paul, about what you said, and you said it maybe with even more uh, uh, verve in the in the email. But this idea that if we go out into the world and study it and take careful observations, nobody's going to want to read that crap. I don't know. It sounds to me now, and it sounded to me even more in the email, like somebody, if uh, like Fox News is being accused of doing irresponsible research or just any media outlet is doing like just to get clicks or just to get viewers, sensationalist stuff. And then and the critic, the media critic says, you know, we should be doing we shouldn't just be trying to appeal to like base instincts on the part of the viewer. We should be trying to inform them and we should be trying to do careful journalism and uh, long reads and stuff like that. And then the reply would be, but nobody's going to read that. Nobody's going to watch that. Nobody's going to click on that. Okay, so, okay, maybe that's true, but that doesn't justify doing flashy, irresponsible, outrage-inducing media stuff just to get people to watch and just to get people to click on it, right? And I know that that's a little bit of an unfair way of putting your point, but, like, in terms of the scientific value of what is done, the fact that nobody would read it from a wider perspective doesn't diminish the value of it. And also the fact that people will want to read something. I mean, people will want to learn about the Stanford prison experiment and that doesn't make it a responsible piece of research that is actually informing us about something real. So that's my, I, that's my first point. And then my second point is something a little different about maybe the value of the more qualitative or descriptive stuff. But, but I just want you to... So let me clarify. Yeah. When I say no one's going to care, I don't mean that in a sense of, you know, clickbait and whether you're going to get published in the top journals. I mean, nobody should care. It's, it's, I, I think people are correct not to want to care. I think that if Psych Science had an article and the first article was well, one of our big journals in our field, the first article was, you know, was a bunch of psychologists go into um, a DMV, Department of Motor Vehicles, and they observe what's happening there. I'm going to skip that because, you know, I don't think it, it doesn't seem interesting in any significant way. And to the extent there are observations to be had, again, there are people who are so better equipped to write about it. I mean, I, there's a lot of journalists and novelists and essayists I read. I read what Roxanne Gay has to say about a, a, a DMV. I read Ian McEwen about a prison. I'd read, you know, I'd read uh, uh, some, some long-form journalists. But psychologists, they, just, they would just describe it. But the alternative isn't, you know, flashy, bogus, made-up experiments. The alternative is, you know, really clever theoretical, where you have a clever theoretical idea, and then either in real-world circumstances or in incredibly artificial circumstances, you, uh, you test it. So in some way, I'm, I'm speaking out, it's, it's about time the establishment came and, and, and met with you guys and said, enough, enough. You know, there's, there's a lot to be said for the standard experimental method for, for getting real insights. We've learned all sorts of great stuff that way. And I don't think we've learned anything from this neutral observation of what you're describing. So you're acting like there are no sciences that 
use observation and you talk about the hippy dippy Paul Rosen thing, but he and, and I love Paul Rosen. Right. But in that in that paper, he documents pretty rigorously how biologists went about their business before jumping into experiments and they didn't worry about the fact that, well, you know, careful notes about what's going on in the Galapagos is not going to be interesting to me or it's not going to be interesting to people um, who read about it. They thought that that was a necessary step before jumping into the experimental method. And I don't know, like the the way you're talking about it, it's like you gather information and you build a theory and you generate a counterintuitive hypothesis. And if you can demonstrate it, uh, if that hypothesis is confirmed, we've really learned something. How how often does that does that happen where you really do build a theory in social psychology, I mean, uh, where you really do build a theory that generates a hypothesis that out of that will come a really surprising prediction that um, turns out to be true or turns out to be confirmed, which will provide some evidence for the theory. I mean, do you really think there's a lot of that going on in social psychology? Because I take Mickey and Yoel's point in their episode, that's actually not usually what goes on in these experiments. No, I, I, I agree with you. It, it, I'm not describing, there, there's a lot of stuff which is neither open-minded description, which at least is harmless and might generate good ideas, nor is it robust, careful experiments of the sort I like. It's, it's the, the mush in between. But let me give you an example. This is what I sent in my, in my email screed, because somebody told me, but I always found this fascinating. Um, and, and it seems like an example we should always go back to. In 1981, this guy, this kind of fairly obscure Australian internship, had a new theory of ulcers. Everybody thought ulcers were caused by stress. He thought ulcers were caused by bacteria, uh, some sort of bacterial strain. Um, nobody believed him. He couldn't test it on on monkeys because the whole thing, uh, sorry, on, on mice because it only works on primates. He couldn't get permission to test it on, on primates. He couldn't use humans because of obvious ethical reasons. So what he did was he put together a stew of bacteria really made, made it kind of in the soup, drank it all up. And two days later, he was vomiting. He had gastritis. And a couple of days later, he had a full-blown ulcer. Now, you hear this story and say, wow, this guy had a theory. He, te- he did something which makes no sense outside of the theory and had a prediction that no one else would make conf- and confirmed it. And that's science at its best. And by the way, he didn't have to test you know, 10,000 people from different ethnicities and different genders and different parts of the world. He did, he had an N of one, a single trial, no statistics, because he had an idea and tested it. And I don't think, I don't think this sort of thing is beyond the capacity of social psychology. It shows up in other forms of psychology. There are, there are many demonstrations uh, in cognitive psychology, perceptual psychology, where somebody says, if my theory, say Anne Treisman's theory of visual pop-out is correct, these letters should pop out at you, and these should not. And you could show it to me and say, I got it. And so I think maybe so- social psychologists should be gearing their efforts to getting sophisticated enough theories where they could, they could do stuff like that. So can I jump in with a couple of thoughts? Because I think that there are, uh, um, there are some distinctions that need to be made that, that I, I've like feel like you guys are conflating a few things. One is the method of observation, right? The the systematic 
field observation or getting data from Twitter or whatever. Like there, there is that, that method. And so long as that method is careful um, and systematic, then that method ought to be a solid way of acquiring empirical information about the world. <clears throat> so if you have a theory that you want to test through observational methods, going to the DMV right, um, or to the grocery store isn't that crazy a way to test it. So um, I want to bring Tom Gilovich's work into here because this, these are great examples of, of observational studies built within a package of studies that include experiments, but that arose from from observations, right? So a lot of what he does is, is observing, like he watches sports. So, so he has a feeling, uh, some intuition forms about uh, what's going on in sports. So he has a, a well-known paper about the amount of time that hockey players or other team sport players who are wearing black uniforms get called for penalties in a disproportionate amount than those who, who aren't wearing black uniforms. He has a, a great study on people missing free throws when their foul has been called clearly in their favor as a mistake. So th so they're discombobulated because they know that they shouldn't have been getting a free throw and they're more likely to miss. These are just looking at the data and the numbers, but he's testing a, at least a hypothesis. And Tamler, you're saying like, we don't, we don't ever do that. Well, he doesn't have a full-blown theory of the human mind, but he definitely has a local theory, which is which takes the form of a specific hypothesis in here. And he's doing observational work to test it out in a systematic way. And I think he's generating reliable information about the world. He usually combines it with experimental studies. So I, I think that... What, what is the theory? I, 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 this is a sincere question. Like, what's the theory that... No, it's just a hypothesis. It's just that... In this, I think that you keep thinking that what re is required for falsification to work as science is like a broad theory. His theory is just like, oh... Uh, there is something going on in the mind of NBA players that when they get a foul unfairly called in their favor, they will be discombobulated and this will cause them to miss. That's all I mean by a theoretical claim. Like it's, and it takes the specific form of the hypothesis that let's count the, like the, the proportion of free throws made after they get a foul in this way called in their favor, they'll miss more. So that's all. It's not... It's not a grand theory of anything. It's well, I, I'm not. It's not. You, I'm not asking if what the theory of the human mind is. Just like is the theory that people who feel like they were granted something unjustly will subconsciously act in a way to return something like that. Something like that. Yeah. Yeah. And so he then takes that idea and does it in the lab by having people. Um, play a beanbag toss game when they've totally been unfairly awarded an extra toss and he, he shows evidence for that. Now, I think that's confirmatory, right? Like, you know, you could, you could spin it as falsifying, but it's probably just confirmatory. He's just look, looking to prove something. But it's a good, I've always liked his work because it does, he is looking at the real world and documenting phenomena out there in the real world with real behavior. And sometimes the only way you can get that is through observational work. He had a postdoc sit there and code NBA games, hours upon hours of NBA games. So I, I tend to agree with Paul about like the uselessness. So I, I agree. I agree with, I should say, I agree with all of that. I agree with the idea that the real work could give you cool ideas for theories of different levels. And also once you have a hypothesis, you might test it using real world data. Totally agree. 
Right. So hypothesis-driven real-world observation might be good. I still think that systematic observation, I think usually what psychologists, social psychologists say is this, their descriptive work is just like capturing intuitions through living in the world. I'm certain that Tom would say, you know, it's just hours and hours of watching basketball games. Um, and, and maybe that's not, you know, that's why you do systematic. But, but it, I still think that if you, if you were just like, I wonder when fairness emerges in kids and you go to a playground and you systematically observe them, I think that you might actually save yourself the pain of having done a bunch of lab experiments without any good theory of what's going on, right? You might get real use out of that. But you have to reward. It's not just personally, because as an institution, then you would want to reward people who are doing that work too, and not just the work of people who run the the flashy experiment afterwards. Yeah, and it's, tr- you know, Paul, you tell me, like, at least in social psychology, if you just go in with a descriptive field study, even if you're testing a hypothesis, chances are, I mean, it's getting better now, but chances are they're going to tell you to beef up that paper with some experiments before you actually submit it. And if I was a reviewer, I would say that too. Your example of fairness emerging gets a little bit complicated because what counts as the emergence of fairness is, is extremely theoretically laden. So it may be in some way very theoretically informed work. Booger picking. But, but you know, right. But if you go to a playground and count booger picking and then you send it into a child, to the general child development, damn right the reviewers are going to say, why did you do this? Well, there goes my full professor packet. <laughs> that's right. There like, goes. That's, that's, like, so, so t- take booger picking. And is it booger or booger? Well, anyway, well, that's a different, that's a whole different paper. I don't think it's booger. Booger? Booger. I don't think. Yeah. yeah. It's spelled that way, though. Okay. Well, huh. You see, through everyday observation, we, we, we learn things. But um, I find that that is honest to God description and so on. And, and I, don't think, I don't think people care because... <laughs> That's not a fair uh, example of descriptive research. But suppose you looked at, you, you want, you looked at hitting or stealing or acts of kindness. Still, absent some organizing principles, some ideas. I mean, one way to put it is sort of more in economic terms. Whoever does this is extremely replaceable. Anybody could do this. You don't need any idea. You need no special skills. So even if such an article should be published in a top journal, then you just move it to the web and you have thousands and thousands of these things coming in. Everybody who has a kid, just about every psychologist has a diary entries and so on. And Maybe, to be fair to the, to, the, to the Galapagos examples, maybe the first people who did systematic, uh, rec- sophisticated recordings of their kids' speech really did have making contribution. At the very least, they're making data available for future researchers. My dissertation work was largely based on data that was collected by other people rec- making recordings of their kids' early language. But now, that well has been tapped. And nobody cares anymore about the stories of you and your kids. It's not to say that you can't get really cool experiments, ideas for experiments by hanging out with your kids, but your observations of the adorable things your kids do or what they do day to day are of very little interest. I mean, again, like when you say, when you talk like that, it it sounds like, you know, responsible political journalism, nobody cares. Rush Limbaugh is not replaceable. I'm attacking C-SPAN. I'm attacking, <laughs> I'm attacking somebody putting up a camera and pointing it at, 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 some, at some rally that's about to begin and leaving the camera running for three hours. Right. And you're defending Hannity. 
it. <laughs> oh, you know, I'm, I'm defending, I'm defending frontline. I don't know. I'm defending sharp, incisive, investigative journalism. When you say interest, when Paul says interest, he means scientific value. I think, the, and he's assuming that scientists will be interested in things of scientific value. We can agree on that. Yeah. I was going to say the ulcer guy I love. Like, this is, a, this is wonderful. I think that the problem is we have, uh, we're very far from tight theories in social psychology. And to be honest, as I grow older, I don't know that we'll ever get to tight theories in social psychology. But the ulcer guy is a nice illustration of, of Daniel Lacken's point as to why we do studies, which is he didn't do the study to say, and I want to conclude that everybody around the world, if they swallowed this bacteria, would get would get an ulcer. He may not have any thought about that. Maybe maybe they wouldn't for all sorts of reasons. He doesn't care. He did that that thing because he has a tight hypothesis. And if he wasn't right, there's no reason to expect this to happen. And the fact that it happened supports the fact that he's right. It's very, you know, it's it's very deductive. And then it leads to a discovery where nobody in their right mind would dismiss. And and yeah, I think we are very far away from it. We aren't so far away from it in other fields of, of psychology. Yeah, visual perception is a good example. I mean, Brian Schultz says this, you know, he says sometimes he, he thinks it's a waste of time and money to go and run the experiments and the proper stats because when he creates a visual illusion based on his theory of how vision works, specifically predicting this, it pops out so well that you can bring in your colleagues and everybody's going to see it. And, and then you have to go because you want to submit it to a journal. Okay, let's get... 50 kids per condition and, and tweak it. But he has zero doubt that they're going to find it, right? Yeah. And, and I share your skepticism. I mean, I could say a good experiment, an exciting psychological experiment goes like that and you really don't need statistics. But it might well be true that it's very hard to create such experiments in our field because we don't know enough. Should we take a break and talk about something with far more resolution? Judaism. <laughs> All right. We'll be right back. Let's take a moment to thank one of our sponsors for today, HelloFresh. Dave, you know that feeling, beginning of the week, you got to go to the supermarket, fight through all these people walking like zombies with their douchey AirPods on to get groceries for meals, to figure out what you're going to have. And just the prospect of that drains you of all energy and a lot of your will to live. You know that feeling? <laughs> I feel like you've described me in every every time I go shopping. <laughs> like douchey AirPod wearing, just like you know, I think I've described it as Sisyphean before, which is yeah. which is uh really what it feels like. And that's the opposite of the feeling I get, which I got yesterday when my HelloFresh box arrived uh, on my porch. Yes, HelloFresh is the answer to this form of existential dread. <laughs> <laughs> you get mouth-watering seasonal recipes and pre-measured ingredients delivered right to your door. HelloFresh makes cooking at home fun, easy, and affordable. So break out of your dinner rut with HelloFresh's 22-plus seasonal chef-curated recipes each week. There's something for everyone, including low-calorie, vegetarian, and family-friendly recipes every week. It cuts out stressful meal planning and prepping so you can enjoy cooking and get dinner on the table in just about 30 minutes, roughly, maybe a little more. <laughs> Depend how long it takes to chop vegetables. <laughs> uh, but also they have quick recipe options uh, as well. The packaging... 
they use to ship your food is almost entirely made from recyclable and or already recycled recycled content. And it's flexible. It fits your lifestyle. You can add extra meals or lunches to your weekly order or throw in yummy sides and desserts like garlic bread and cookie dough. Change your delivery days or food preferences and skip a week whenever you need. Dave, a couple weeks ago, I went to Galveston, which is a nearby town on the beach uh, from Houston, and we were staying at an Airbnb, and we brought the butternut squash risotto. Holy shit, was that good. So creamy, so delicious. It, it, it was creamy. There was they, those are cre- melt in your mouth. Yeah. And, and HelloFresh is now from $5.66 per serving. That's why it's America's number one meal kit, America's best value meal kit, best value, delicious choice. So for our listeners right now, go to HelloFresh.com slash VeryBadWizards10 and use VeryBadWizards10 the use code very bad wizards 10 during HelloFresh's new year's sale for 10 free meals including free shipping once again that's hellofresh.com slash very bad wizards 10 use code very bad wizards 10 during HelloFresh's new year's sale for 10 free meals including free shipping thanks to hellofresh for sponsoring this episode Welcome back to Very Bad Wizards. At this point in the episode, we like to take a moment to thank all of our listeners who support us in the various ways that you do, who get in touch with us, who email us. I especially want to shout out some of the Bernie Bro and Bernie Gal um, listeners that we have. Um, I this is just we're recording this just after a huge win for Bernie in Nevada. And I'm not going to claim full credit for it after my endorsement, but uh, but it was nice. I mean, it's like seventy percent, seventy two percent. Yeah, credit. something something along those. <laughs> Definitely quantifiable. Um, yeah. The, uh, but yeah, um, we even if you're not emailing to say that you also love Bernie, it's still great to hear from all of you. We've gotten a ton of good emails um, lately. Some funny tweets. And um, you can email us, verybadwizards at gmail.com. You can tweet at us, at Tamler, at Peas, at Very Bad Wizards. The, you can like us on Facebook. You can follow us on Instagram. And you can join the discussion on our subreddit, uh, Reddit 
facebook.com slash r slash very bad wizards, which is not moderated by us, but there's often some good discussion. And sometimes we go in there ourselves and get our get our Reddit feet dirty uh, defensively sometimes, but I mean, there's two things that get me to comment. One is if somebody says anything about my beats, and the other is if they just troll me straight up. <laughs> yes. <laughs> and by troll, I mean disagree with me and tag me, <laughs> which is just my personal definition. <laughs> uh, yeah. No, me too. I'm surprised how trollable I am. I'm not usually like when it comes to other, there's something about Reddit. I guess that's why it's so popular. And if your support wants to take the form of less Bernie emailing and trolling us on Reddit, um, <laughs> but take the form of more tangible ways, if you want us to feel uh, uh, good in this very specific way, you can go support us at our Patreon. We love our Patreon supporters. You can go to our Very Bad Wizard support page and go click from there, or you can go to patreon.com slash verybadwizards. We, are, we were just actually discussing... The leftovers. I think we might have it in us eventually to do yeah. uh, something on the leftovers. Yeah. Um, if any of you actually watched it, I think. I think. Yeah. Let us know if that's did. something for our patrons. Yeah. Be interested in. Yeah. So you can support us there, or you can give us a one-time or recurring donation um, by clicking the PayPal button. We really, really appreciate all of that support uh, from all of you. Thank you so much. It keeps the lights on. It keeps us um, doing this this uh what would otherwise feel sometimes like a tiring thankless job um, exhausting you sweet dealing with each other (laughs) that's right Uh, you're paying us to be friends is essentially what you do (laughs) uh so thank you all right now that we're uh, done with our support segment i just wanted to take a moment because we didn't actually properly introduce paul in the magnanimous way that we usually do with his brooks and Ronald Reagan, um, that I always butcher, Brooks and Reagan, professor of psychology at Yale University. Such a fluent and beautiful, <laughs> beautiful introduction. I can't, I can't believe you missed it the first time. I am the Brooks and Suzanne Reagan, uh, professor of psychology. And I'll say that because I have actually met Brooks and Suzanne Reagan. Uh, Brooks Reagan passed away a few years ago. I met Suzanne Reagan regularly. And, and they are in, they, they're tremendously nice, sweet people and great supporters of science. So I like them a lot. That's wonderful. And uh, what I really wanted to say was a few nice things about you, Paul, believe it or not. Whenever we get, like we just got on Reddit, somebody saying like, I'm, I'm new to the podcast. Can anybody tell me what some good episodes are to, to jump into? Invariably, like the, the, the predict, I can predict this through just my descriptive uh, observation of the world before now. It's uh, the Paul Bloom episodes are the best. Paul Bloom episodes are the best. Paul Bloom episodes are the best. Start and, with uh, the Paul so, Bloom episodes, they start, say. Yeah. Yeah. That's yeah. very nice of you to say. Thank you. I mean, I got to say, on, on the flip side, I do a lot of podcasts sometimes, you know, but particularly when I'm promoting something, but also just to talk to people. But, but you know, you guys have a special place in my heart. Thank you. And he says that as a Sam Harris co-host nowadays, uh, which we'll put a link to that, actually. Thank you. Um, you're doing a series with, with Sam Harris now that I'm sure people will love. You- you're like the Mike and Mad Dog of the intellectual dark web. I don't get the re- just don't I just don't get the reference. I'm sorry. Sports something, alt right something. Oh, some sports yeah, alt right reference. Yeah, yeah. I'm all about the alt right, but the sports I, I just don't get. Yeah, um, yeah. That's a that's a reference that may not overlap with many people in our audience. 
they're they're New York like old time radio hosts uh, that that we used to be on together for a long time talking New York sports. All right, should we talk about a serious man? Start with some general thoughts. What did you guys think of the movie? What did yeah? What did you think? How did you watch it? What's your impression of it? Well, can we first say that for people who haven't seen it, this is a Coen Brothers movie that's really just about a, a family in this, uh, a Jewish family in the 50s, right? It's 50s in uh, Minnesota? 60s, I think. 60s 67, yeah. Summer of 67. Okay. And a lot of crazy shit happens to this poor guy. He's like a kid. He's like God's punching bag, I think. Um, so I, I, I love the movie. I loved it more the second time than the first time. It is hard to watch, man. I think that's all I really have to say is it's funny but also sad in a way that the Coen brothers just, I think, do a really nice job of making me not sure whether this is deep, hilarious, or just awful. <laughs> yeah, I, I, I have all the same impression. I'll, I'll add it was nominated for Best Picture the same year, I think, that Avatar was. And it's hard to imagine two, two more different movies. Um, they don't make it easy for you. I found this funny I loved watching it. It's difficult to watch. And it just it just isn't easy. And you don't get the feeling, oh, this is a puzzle. I'm going to work it through. I'm going to figure out what it's all about. Because I think a lot of it is just for laughs. And a lot of it is clever. And a lot of it is misdirection. But if there's a category of great film, this is in it. Yeah, so I saw it the first time on DVD when I had like 103 fever. And I was by myself in New Orleans and I had it was like all I could watch because I just had a few DVDs. I remember liking it, but I remembered also nothing about it. And then I watched it last night and then this morning, like back to back. And so when I watched it last night, I remember saying to, to my wife and daughter, you know, people think that this is their masterpiece. And I kind of feel like I can see why but I didn't but I can't really put my finger on it exactly so then I watched it again today this morning as soon as I got up I got up very early watched it again and I it just clicked for me like I, I feel like I understood better the movie the themes of it and I also under it understood why people think it's a masterpiece it's funny Paul you said it's not this puzzle that fits together i think it kind of is there are these intricate elements of both the plot and the themes that it doesn't fit together perfectly but it almost fits together in ways that are tantalizing and in ways that reflect like what the movie is about tantalizing questions with no answers so you think you could explain explain some of it well, I feel like I have a better, no, like, do I think I've decoded it? No, but to the extent that it's possible. But you think it's decodable? It's not decodable in the sense that there, that there is this solution that is then a resolution that's satisfying, but I think there's a lot that's put together thematically and plot-wise. Like, so I'll give you an example. Like, this is something I noticed on the second rewatch. So in uh, very early on in the movie, the uh, a, a Korean student comes to complain about his grade. He had failed a physics midterm. 
Clive, the uh, with a stereotypical Korean name, Clive. Clive Park, yes. <laughs> An- another unflattering uh, designation of a stereotype, by the way. That's right. So as he's walking in, and we can talk about that scene. It's hilarious. One of the funniest scenes in the movie. But as he's walking in, he gets a little memo as to who is waiting for him. And uh, like people who have called and the reason for their call and the reason for Clive's visit. And on the reason for Clyde's visit, it says unjust test result. And he says like that the, that the test result was unjust on, on the physics test. So then at the end of the movie, he decides to keep Clive Park's bribe money and change his grade from an F to a C. And then he switches it to a C minus. Right. And then right as that happens, uh, he gets a phone call from his doctor that heavily suggests that an x-ray that they just took revealed that he has cancer. And so... That, in another sense, is an unjust test result. He got a result from the test that is unjust. He gives Clive Park an unjust test result because he really failed it, and he's now giving him a C-. And then right after that, there is an unjust test result of a different kind. And I think there's just tons of that. Now, what does it mean? I don't know. Does that mean, like, justice was served here? Like, that's the kind of question that the movie doesn't answer. But it packs in all these things to make the questions more tantalizing. As something that is clearly richly thematic, like, to me, it's clear. Like, all those connections that Tamler's talking about are are what makes the movie great for me. And I think that if we're if we're saying like what is there a solution to the mystery in any straightforward sense, I I, I think then that's kind of not what the theme is. The theme is as as he has the as Clive Park's father says, kind of cryptically, but just very thematically, accept the mystery. I think this is just a series of questions and there it's no it's not at all a coincidence that people, you know, think this is a, a modern Job story. Right? Well, so this is the funny thing. I know that people think it's a Job story, and I get why. And there's a lot of stuff like the three rabbis are, in some sense, could be like the three friends. God God coming in a whirlwind at the end. But thematically, this struck me as closer to Ecclesiastes, raising questions that there are no answers to. And the only thing we can do is live your life. And stop obsessing about the questions because we will never get an answer to them. I mean, I think the themes of Job and Ecclesiastes are so, they're, they're both so kind of, you know, old-timey existential that, that for sure the, the question of the meaning of life is, is kind of at the center and what, what should a good person do. And there's so, so many instances where every time he, the, the part that I think is very Job-like is whenever there's a question asked there is like explicitly a non-answer given. Uh, let's talk about the the opening, which right. is so, so. Do either well, somebody should summarize it? But I wonder whether either of you have a theory of how that connects with the broader movie as a whole. I, I do. Okay. Even though the movie takes place in Minneapolis suburb where the Coen brothers grew up, uh, or at least you know modeled after where the Coen brothers grew up, and at the time that they grew up, um, in the neighborhood that they grew up. The movie begins in like a 19th century shtetl. 
and it is a very small story of a a, a man who uh, in who comes back to uh, his house, and he has met somebody on the way who saved who helped him um, when he needed help, and it turns out to be this rabbi, and he comes and he tells his wife, "Look, I, I ran into this rabbi. It was so lucky," and um, and then he tells. The, the, his wife, the rabbi's name, and the wife says he died uh, three years ago. Who, what you saw was a dibuk. A dibuk is like uh, kind of a demonic Jewish spirit that can take the form of people who have, who have died. Then the husband says, what are you talking about? That's impossible. I'm a rational man. And, and he says, and I invited him over to eat. He's coming over right now. And the wife is very angry about this. You don't let a dibuk into your house. And he comes in and he seems very, you know, joyful and he's laughing and, uh, and the wife just, uh, to his face calls him a dibbuk and offers him food and he turns it down and she says, I told you, dibbuks don't eat. And then he just laughs about it and he says, yes, I was sick, but I didn't end up dying. Obviously here I am. And then she stabs him in the heart and he laughs. And at first you think, oh, it's definitely a dibbuk. Because there's no blood. He seems not to be hurt. He was clearly wearing layers. Yeah. Shit. And then he, <laughs> but then a little time passes, he gets weak, and then blood starts to appear, and he leaves. And the husband's like, husband says, Oh my God, they're going to find his body. We're in so much trouble now. And she says, Nope, good riddance to evil. She slams the door on it. And that's it. And we never hear about that again. And it, it was in, in Yiddish, the whole thing. To which my daughter, who is taking German, she's like, they're speaking German, Dad. And I was like, daughter. <laughs> that's, that's a shock that your daughter is taking German, by the way. <laughs> I know. I was believing. The, so the, the Dybbuk story, uh, it was completely confusing to me the first time I watched it. The second time I watched it, it would have been as confusing if I, didn't, if I hadn't read someone say that this is supposed to be one of his ancestors who, who is then cursed because of what they did to to that whatever it was. Well, that's their interpretation. The Cohen brothers specifically deny any connection like that. Do the Cohen brothers? Is, is there a place where the Cohen brothers talk about this? Do they offer us anything? Only to say that it is disconnected from the rest of the story. Well, that's helpful. Then I'm not sure what 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 the connection is because you're right. I mean, if it were just an ancestor, that would be a boring. Right. Like the whole point is that everything that's happening to him is sort of mysterious. And so I, I don't know. I don't have any interesting theory of, of what this is supposed to represent. Well, well, this is something I heard from somebody on Slate. I forget who it was as I was scrambling to find out. But drew a connection between the boldness of the woman in the shuttle, uh, her aggression, her clear confidence, and the boldness of, uh, of Larry's wife, who, who you know, very assertively takes up with another man. And the meekness of Larry himself, and so it just occurs to me one way to take this was that that uh, that Larry is in some sense being punished for being a nebbish, for being being a nobody, for being a nothing, to be contrasted with how that woman in the past fought off evil. Yeah, so that's sort of similar to my take of the thematic connection. Is this is a movie about? somebody who just life happens to and he never takes action i've done nothing yeah i've done nothing is the refrain from the movie i didn't do anything i didn't do anything and the wife 
just with no doubt in her mind, stabs this Debeck. And she acts. And then when the the blood appears and he leaves and she slams the door, she still doesn't have any doubt. And meanwhile, the man is racked with doubt about what just happened. And we'll never know whether it's a Dybbuk or not, whether she stabbed an innocent man, an innocent old man, or if it was, a, if it was really a demon. And even in the credits, it is listed as Dybbuk, question mark. They also say no Jews were harmed in the making of this film. So thematically, it's like we are posed with these questions, which we're not going to get answers to. And here are two ways of dealing with it, not acting, because you don't know, or acting. And, you know, it's two extremes of the spectrum. At least her is just, I am, I know. Even though it's uncertain, I know. Move forward without any doubt. And that is exactly what the main character can't do. He's too obsessed with the question and the lack of answers to, to, to take any action at all. I like that because it, it gets at the... <sighs> The feeling that Larry has of dissatisfaction without getting any answers, right? The, every answer is bullshit or a non-answer. And at some point he tells you, you know, the one of the rabbis, I forget, says, I wrote it down somewhere, but um, where he says, uh, God's not going to give you any answers. And he says, why did he make me want to ask the questions then? Why does he make us feel the questions? Why does he make us, yeah, he says, why does he make us feel the questions if he isn't going to give the answers? And then the rabbi says, he hasn't told me. And the, the difference between somebody who is comfortable with uncertainty um, or is very certain themselves, like the wife being, she's, there's no doubt. I, I look at that and I say, what must it be like to have that certainty that what you're doing is the right thing and not be racked with uh, a, a deep, profound failure to know why any of this is going on. I, I would be more the Larry than I would be the wife. And it goes right into the Schrodinger's cat, you know, him at the chalkboard talking about Schrodinger's cat, and which is all about the uncertainty of whether the cat is alive or dead. And what the wife does is just open the box. You know, <laughs> yeah. uh, whereas Larry just has to live with the uncertainty. You know, the wife in the in the, the Dybbuk scene just opens the box. This is what it is. What do you guys make of the sexy neighbor who surprisingly turns out to be Jewish? <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Why do you say that? Because you don't find your own people attractive. <laughs> because faking us out once once again. That, but, uh, <laughs> but he but yeah. So she uh, she turns out to be Jewish. The, the non-Jewish figure, I guess, is the guy who goes to the dentist, the guy with the teeth. And also the next door neighbor. Oh, that's right. Who's t- and, that, and that is played for the stereotype. That is, that is the, you know, the, the know-nothing, beefy, you know, hunting thug. They are goys as, like, Jews imagine goys in, like, their, their nightmares. Uh, that scene where they bring home the, some sort of huge deer or... Yeah, it's a, a buck, yeah. Like, scrub off, Mitch. Scrub off. <laughs> and then to make it a bit heavy-handed, uh, Larry has a dream where he's being hunted by, uh, by, by this guy who's out to hunt Jews. 
This is another truth. What? So I, you know, I don't. This is maybe a loose connection, but all I could think of was when David spied Bathsheba bathing. Um, oh, and, very and nice. lusted after her. Yeah, it seemed like a like a, a clear a clear connection. Although you know, David then has the husband killed. Um, something this guy would never never be able to do. Right? She also kind of represents something that's otherwise absent in the movie, which is the time period. Like this is the late sixties. This is six summer of sixty seven. Like this is the drugs, free love. But otherwise, I know the kids are smoking pot in school, but not in the way that you imagine the 60s. And so she is some part of that, too, that is has been up till the point where he goes into her house, very closed off from Larry Gopnik. I guess one obvious attempt at a parallel with the Book of Job and with the Dibbuk story is that the wives do represent actually the bad person. So Job's wife is constantly saying, you know, in no uncertain terms, curse God and die. Like just, you know, this guy's fucking with you. Some I saw some people write that maybe that the Dibbuk might represent the presence of God himself and that in that the wife stabbing the Dibbuk was essentially either killing God or killing the messenger of God. So because we don't know whether that guy was really a Dibbuk or not, I suspect not, we don't know whether what she did with with her certainty was a good thing or whether it's a bad thing. And it's not like his Larry's wife, uh, what's Judith, my ex-wife's name as well. So this was nice. Um, seems to be a terrible person, but also I can see why somebody would get frustrated living with the indecisiveness of Larry, right? It's not like, it's not like it's obvious that, that, you know, I could see Larry not even knowing that for years things have been going poorly and not doing anything about it, right? He says, I've done nothing, right? The, the lack of doing anything is what's why I'm leaving you. And the lack of doing anything is a is an action. So I think this is represented by the Columbia Records Company. Oh, very nice. I'm not a member of Columbian Records, he says. So he says, I haven't done anything. And, he, and the Columbia Record guy says, you not doing anything is requesting the the selection of the month. And so the inaction, no, that that is requesting a by doing nothing you have requested the main selection and, uh of the month Santana's For those who are too young, you know, this this was a thing. I, even when we were kids, the Columbia the Columbia record pool where you would get they would sneakily get you cuz you would get like 12 CDs for free and um but then they you would just default get into this like every month you had to pay 20 bucks for a cd or something and, if you, and, and then people would just forget and it was just coming in the mail every month and and i got caught up in that they, they had it for books they had it for cds they had it for everything and uh but but it's great it's a lesson to the sin of inaction and the whole movie he is saying i didn't do anything he says that right when his wife says he she wants a divorce and he says i didn't do anything you know and I think part of the point is by not doing anything, which he n- never does, that's a kind of response to the world. That's a kind of action. There was a part that that struck me when um, we were talking earlier about uh, the test, the Asian kid failed, um, the Korean kid. He expresses a few times that you know, he tells the kid, the kid says, no, I knew the concepts. I didn't know we, there was going to be math. Like no one told me there would be math. And uh, he's like, what are you talking about? You can't do physics without the math. And he says, the math is the real thing. I think that he finds comfort in the certainty of mathematics, right? 
the only time you see him expressing joy is when he's writing those equations on the board. And, and I think that the, that is one aspect of life or of existence where he knows he can be sure the answer is right or wrong. Everything else around him is, he's just causing all this confusion, right? He's, he's very bad at judgment under uncertainty, but with math, he doesn't, even when you express the uncertainty principle in mathematic terms, he can deal with it. Yeah, and he says something about stories at that scene, which could be sort of a reflection on the movie itself. Like, you know, the, 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 these stories we tell, they're just for illustration. They're not the real thing. They're fables. They're fables. And I took that to represent also, like, the fables and the stories in the Bible and the Jewish tradition, right? These are fables. We don't understand Abraham and Isaac. Like, what is that supposed to mean? That God asks him to sacrifice his kid, he almost does. And, you know, like, how are we supposed to interpret that? We don't know. But, yeah, I think the math is supposed to be, like you said, Dave, the the truth. But then as Sai says, dead Sai, in the dream, mathematics is the art of the possible. Before we forget the to talk about Sai, when he comes over, I remember the first time I saw this. The way that they can build, the Coen brothers build the frustration by Sai. So Sai is his friend who turns out is either cheating or about to uh, be, uh, the wife is going to leave leave Larry for this guy. Sai is an actor who who's, I, I don't, he's been in a bunch and I really like the guy, but he plays this role so well where he's essentially going to sidestep any conflict. He's not going to let, he knows Larry, he knows Larry's not going to confront. So the way that he gets around this is he's just like, he's patronizing to like, so patronizing. He says, you know, uh, I'm glad we could take care of this as an adult. And he's smarmy and weird and he hugs. He keeps, he hugs he keeps touching him. He keeps touching yeah, him. There's this no way. personal space. <laughs> there's nothing, and it's it's almost like he's trying to be a, a like a bad therapist for him when the guy has just realized that his wife is leaving him for this guy, and he's still in shock. And the guy's like you know, holding his hand and telling him, "Thank you for being such an adult about it." He's like, "I don't know what you're talking about." Like he's the polar opposite of Larry, right? He is all smarmy certainty, whereas Larry is you know, in uh, passive uncertainty. Like he is just... He's a serious man. Yes, he's a serious man, sure of what has to happen at every step. Who, that Larry has to move out of the house and live with the Jolly Rogers um, so that they can have their affair. Uh, yeah, he basically decides that for him. <laughs> there's, a scene, there's a scene where Larry says to his wife, why don't you move over to his house? And they both look at him shocked and disgusted. And Sai says, you know, Larry... Larry, what are you saying? We can't do that. He says, Larry, you're joking. <laughs> you jest. Yeah, you're jest. You jest. Yes. Well, Ethel did die a mere three years ago, so. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Her body is still warm. This episode of Very Bad Wizards is also brought to us by uh, actually a new sponsor. I think it's the first time we've had just a standalone app um, as a sponsor. Um, but it is a sponsor, Tamler, that I think we we needed, if not the sponsor, we deserve. And that's Daily Budget App. It is a simple iOS app that makes budgeting easy. Tamler, I've been trying to get you to do 
I need to do. I mean, your your wife has been texting me. <laughs> I I, I want to do it. I'm scared to do it because I know that once I get like financial affairs in order, it will become clear to me that I have flushed. It sounds like you're gonna die. <laughs> so much money down the toilet that it will. Like I'd rather not know. But my daughter does also have to go to college, so I think I will. This is why we get this sweet podcast money. I don't need to save, but we do. And um, I I will say that this daily budget app is a budgeting app. It's unlike any I've seen or tried before because it does one job. It does it simply and it does it with a beautiful interface. It actually makes it kind of fun Hmm. to start tracking your daily budget. When you download the app, which, by the way, is 100% free, so there are are, um, features that you can unlock that I'll tell you about in a second, but but why not give it a try? This is 100% free. It's it's a beautiful app. Um, it just onboards you. It prompts you to enter your income. Then you enter your recurring expenses. And then you enter a saving goal. And it basically breaks it down for you in one simple screen how much money you can spend on any given day. This is what prompted me to start writing down all of the various services that I'm subscribed to. Uh. (laughs) That was feeling quite shitty. Uh, By the way, the app developers are also avid listeners of Very Bad Wizards, which which means that they are quality, high-character individuals. The highest character. Uh, What struck me when I went to look at the page is this has as close to a perfect set of ratings that apps have it has 4,000 ratings and it's averaging about 4.7, so it's practically five star. Here's one uh, review Beyond Spectacular, the app is fantastic. I've tried other budgeting apps like Mint, but this is the only app that actually works. The other thing that I'll say about this that I really like is all of your information is on your device, you don't have to enter any passwords for any of your services. This is just you, you enter your information, it stays on your phone, you don't have to worry about any security risks, which you should worry about if you're not. So give it a try, daily budget app on the iOS uh, app store, we'll put a link. Um, And thank you, daily budget app for sponsoring this episode of Very Bad Wizards. Thank you, I'm convinced. Sorry, apologies to our audience because we've been talking a lot about the themes with an eye toward getting to the to specific characters and the plot. So why why don't we focus a little bit on on the characters and the plot and what's going on? And one of the things that is happening as we're learning that this family is, you know, that that Larry is about to get left and divorced, one of the sources of tension in the household is that his uncle Arthur, um, played by Richard Kind, who's is amazing is living there clearly he's just you know whatever has happened to his life he doesn't have a place to live he's supposed to be looking for an apartment but he's clearly not doing that we see him all we see him doing is draining his sebaceous cyst which is the gro- the grossest part of this movie um i didn't even know that was a thing and what we see that he's doing is he's constantly writing in this notebook and we do get a glimpse, and this might tie to the theme that I was bringing up about mathematics. We, he finally looks, uh, Larry finally looks in Arthur's notebook, and it appears to be, you know, this. He says he's working on the mentaculus. That's what he labels his 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 oeuvre, right? Like his his notebook, and it looks just like mathematical gibberish. It looks like the notebook of somebody who's gone off the deep end, like a schizophrenic, and. It turns out that he's been using math because he's very gifted with numbers, we hear Larry say. He's been using math to gamble, and he's been making money on sports bets. It's a probability map. It's probability math. And, and 
there is something about the way that Arthur uses math that is uncomfortable for Larry that I all, all I have is like this this vague sense that there is something there. I don't know, but I wanted to ask you guys what you think about the brother and that that plot line. So I can't go deep on that and the, the mentaculous connects to the whole thing about mathematics and the possibilities and Schrodinger's cat and all of that stuff. But the brother more than anybody else is the most is played to be grotesque and, and played, played to be almost comically disgusting. And it's as if the Cohen brothers went out of their way it, in the characters, in, in the people they, um, they, they cast, but also in how they're depicted in the camera work, close-ups of ears and bellies and, and hair to make it a kind of grotesque, uncomfortably grotesque uh, depiction of these people. Absolutely. Absolutely. And why? <laughs> and there, that, that scene in the hotel room where he's woken up and he's kind of crying and you just see his silhouette towards the end of the movie and it is it is grotesque to to the point of like stylized in a way that he almost doesn't look human at that point and yet he's such a poignant character because he he's so disappointed with his life and he sees he actually sees Larry Gopnik who's supposedly the job figure as lucky because he has all these things that that he doesn't have. You know, when you said, Dave, that his math makes Larry feel uncomfortable, it occurred to me that, you know, what his math is is all about probability. And Larry doesn't like probability. He wants certainty. He wants certainty and order. And in that, you know, one of the best shots in any film, I think, is Larry in his dream sequence with the huge chalkboard, uh, blackboard with, with equations. That is, that is Larry having been able to figure out existence with some satisfaction. And it is illusory. It's, it's yeah. Right. It's a dream. He wants order. He wants rules, right? That's why when the, the neighbor is uh, encroaching on his lawn... He, he finds that to be unacceptable because, like, that's breaking a rule. And, like, rules are the things that give our lives order. And so he goes to... to that's right. I hadn't made that connection between the discomfort with uh, disorder from the... And he, he's like, why, like, why would anybody mow? He's literally mowing, like, maybe two feet into his property. And it's, it's like, why would he do that? Right? He doesn't understand why anybody would do it. And I don't, and I don't either. Since we're going through characters, what is what do you make of the son? You know, they would have been young um, in this community. Is the son and his circle of friends representing? You know, he's definitely we see him departing from the traditions of Judaism. He, the, the first scene is him trying to listen to rock and roll on his pocket radio, which is a pretty cool radio, and he gets it, while he's supposed to be learning Hebrew, and so he gets in trouble. We see him smoking weed. He's he's learning to be bar mitzvah because he has to do you know he has to learn the Hebrew, and I couldn't help but think that maybe they are inserting themselves as rebellious teens, but I don't know. Yeah, it could have been a stand-in for the brothers, and you know his his circle of friends. He has his comic friend who says fuckers all the time, and <laughs> they try trying to be tough, and it's just that fucker. It, it's it, that part was actually kind of sweet. You're, you're right. He's rebelling against the tradition in one sense because he's listening in Hebrew school. It's sort of like the most boring possible Hebrew school class you 
that is conceivable by the human mind. Oh, that brought, it brought back the memories. I, I, it brought back, it really did. Did you guys both, I assume both of you were bar mitzvah? Yes. Yes. yes In yes. fact, that was uh, what he was doing. So on the one hand, he's rebelling against the tradition. On the other hand, he is learning his bar mitzvah by listening to the, a recording, which I still remember me doing too. I had a cassette recording, the rabbi made it. And then I meet with him, you know, once a week and we play chess. I, I, pr- I try it out on him, the, the, the recording. He makes some corrections on how I was doing. And then we play chess. And that bar mitzvah, of course, is a fairly significant scene at the end of the movie. What's interesting about bar mitzvahs is that it is this kind of ritual. You do read the Haftorah and there's something very... Uh, momentous about it, despite the fact that you have no idea what it exactly it is that you're saying. You are repeating syllables, essentially. A string of nonsense words. Yeah. <laughs> and and I was not stoned during it, but that is, that's one of the most hilarious things of the movie. The idea of doing that stoned. I I was going to ask. I can't imagine. It made me so uncomfortable. I, and I thought he was definitely going to fuck it up, but somehow he pulls it through. And and I can't help but think that, you know, they're, they're showing him kind of rebel, but he's not completely, he's, he's, he's not completely rebelling. He still does it. And he actually gets it done in, in a way that, you know, he gets congratulated. He did well. Yeah. And the, the shot of his friend being super high in the... <laughs> I re I rewound that a couple. Of times. Uh, yeah, uh, the friend just looks comp- so stoned and also just kind of appalled for for him. He's that freaks me out. Just the thought of being up there freaks me out. All right, let's go to the rabbis. Okay, so so the first rabbi goes to is Rabbi Scott. He's trying to get in the whole time to see this guy named Rabbi Marshak, who's supposed you know he's like the super rabbi. He looks like Jewish Dumbledore. He can't get in, so he sees Rabbi Scott. To get the first lesson, uh, this is actually one of the funniest scenes to me. When when <laughs> Rabbi Scott is a junior rabbi, so we, you know we can accept that he's not fully he's not fully done learning the 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 ways of wisdom. So he's trying really hard to tell to give Larry advice, <laughs> and he says, "You know, you can't see Hashem. You can't ha- Hashem is the word they use for God." You know, you can't, you're looking at the world through tired eyes. And he says, I mean, look at the parking lot. There. <laughs> <laughs> There's also this great scene where Larry says, so she wants to get. And at first the reference you, uh, what? What are you talking about? <laughs> <laughs> okay. Oh, oh yeah. Oh, and he's trying really hard to use the parking lot of a metaphor. Imagine that you couldn't see the parking lot well as a metaphor for not seeing the world well. Um, and it fails miserably, but I actually look at the parking lot, Larry, I think is my my favorite. Uh, because at, at first he says it and he thinks it's going somewhere because it leads to you're looking at your wife with tired eyes and then he reminds him that his wife has left him for uh, Cy <laughs> yeah. Edelman. And he says, oh, right, yeah, the get. Uh, <laughs> Uh, but look at the parking lot, and now it's just a total empty thing to say. Uh, yeah, so not not much wisdom there. <laughs> then he actually goes to his lawyer, I think, right after that, right? And I think there he still he maintains that you know I haven't done anything when he's talking to his lawyer, and he's he's uh, we find out that Sill has died, 
I mean, Sai has died, and Larry might actually have to pay for the funeral and an ultimate fuck you. <laughs> um, he might be responsible for, for paying the funeral of the guy who stole his wife. That goes right into the second rabbi. Right, second um, rabbi and a story of the goy's teeth. Oh, yeah. tell that one. Tell Would that you, one, Paul. Yeah, tell it. <laughs> so, you know, the rabbi unfolds a story. It's a very it's a very good story of this dentist. And then he's cleaning this guy's, uh, doing, trying, doing a, a mold of this guy's teeth. And he sees in the mold Hebrew letters that say, uh, save me, help me. And he brings the guy back and he looks at his teeth. And there in his teeth, embedded in his teeth, are he, the Hebrew letters. <laughs> And he becomes a complete non-Jew. Complete, complete, yeah, complete non-Jew. There's a scene at the end where Larry says, "So what happened to the guy?" And the rabbi says, "Who cares?" <laughs> but more, more of the, the that's the, that's when I knew how you guys really feel. Yeah, about I know. Me. Um, and then so the, the dentist is obsessed. He looks at his own teeth. He looks at his wife's teeth while he's while she's sleeping. Brings back patients. Looks at other molds. Doesn't find anything else. Then he looks and and you know in in um. In Hebrew, uh, the, the letters correspond to numbers, and it comes up to a phone number. So he calls. He calls the place. He goes and visits it, and nothing comes of any of this. And then he just goes and lives his life. And Larry is like dumbstruck. Like, so what's the point of the story? And the rabbi says, you know, well, you know, you asked me to tell the story. First, you asked me to tell it. And now you're upset that I told it. And and Larry is just is just so stunned that the story has no point at all. And to be honest, I was kind of stunned too. It's, it's, uh, and that's when he says, why does he make us feel, you know, uh, the rabbi says, we can't know everything. Hashem doesn't owe, he doesn't owe us an answer. And that dismissal of uncertainty is so well, like, represented in this, this moment, this scene. That's when, when Larry says, why does he make us feel the questions if he isn't going to give us uh, the answers? And the rabbi says, man, eh, he hasn't told me. <laughs> like, why? And that scene, though, that short, story of the guy with the dentist is is Borgesian to me like it is I love it it's stuck it very rarely will something stick that this long from a movie that you see once years ago that story always there's something about it that encapsulates like the absurdity that this is communicating it is the thesis of the movie I think in so many ways so you have this mystery like like on a goy's teeth just Hebrew letters that says, help me, save me. Of course, that's going to be an all-consuming question that he needs an answer to. And he never gets it. And then eventually, like, for a while, he can't sleep. He can't do it. He can't eat. He can't do anything. And then eventually, he returns to life. You see him playing golf and just, you know, laughing with his family. Yeah. And he says, maybe some of these questions are like toothaches where they, you feel them and then they go away. And that's all we have. Again, very Ecclesiastes. Like, in, in the end, you just got to return to life. You just got to, because this, this isn't getting resolved. Okay, so in thinking about this, I feel more like the, this is nihilistic in a way that not even Ecclesiastes is. Like there, this, there's not much of like live life and be happy he just says, just stop asking the questions in a way that is kind of like the dude's philosophy, where just don't, don't let anything bother you, right? The answer is don't let anything bother you. And it feels as if this is less about um, embrace the joys and the suffering of life and live your life, but more about 
There was nothing there. Why do you even care? There's no meaning in the teeth. The way that the second rabbi doesn't even, he's surprised that he would ask how the story ends. Uh, I don't know. He went back to his life. It feels pretty nihilistic to me. I mean, you see the Big Lebowski as more nihilistic than I do. I think the difference between the dude and this character is the dude accepts the uncertainty. So he makes the choice to accept it and to just roll. Yeah, I think that's the ideal. That's what Larry is being told to do. Right, exactly. Uh, but what he is incapable of doing. But but in that sense, I think it is very much in line with Ecclesiastes. This is the best you can do. And there's some good in that, you know. If you can just allow yourself, if you can allow yourself to appreciate the rewards that you are that you are actually given and that's larry's sin is that he doesn't appreciate the rewards of a fan a good family a good career uh a good job instead he's just obsessed with the, the, the questions but he's obsessed with the questions once everything starts crumbling but there is something there is a uh, another parallel i think with ecclesiastes remember when we talked about the end part where it's like you know and and the and koheleth whatever the um, the wise man who's supposed to be the the narrator. It seemed like we said that it seemed like an addendum that was added later. When the rabbi is being pressed by Larry, he says, well, what, like, what did the teeth mean? And the rabbi says, a sign from God. I don't know. But helping others couldn't hurt. (laughs) 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 So it seems as if there is a message there. You know, you can't go wrong if you just ignore all the shit and just try to do good in the world. But, you know, maybe that is it is more optimistic than than I'm uh, describing, because that is something that Larry isn't isn't acting. So he's not acting in any way, let alone acting to help others. He's very self centered and and it occurs to me the one time he does try to take that advice he goes over to the woman's house and says i just want to help out a little bit and that actually leads to the one moment of kind of happiness uh, or at least you know just kind of uh escapism for him is just getting stoned with the woman Okay, let's take one last break to talk about one of our favorite sponsors of all time, GiveWell. GiveWell, who researches charity to help you maximize the impact of your donation. This past giving season, now a couple months old, listeners like you gave over $500,000 to GiveWell's recommended charities and GiveWell wanted us to thank all of you for helping to support some of the most effective charities in the world. How can you have confidence that your donation will have a massive impact? Well, with GiveWell, GiveWell conducts in-depth investigations to find charities that dollar per dollar are saving and improving lives the most. These donations will be used to distribute things like malaria treatments, insecticide-treated bed nets, or vitamin A supplements, programs that can save a life for every few thousand dollars donated. They are constantly working. They're constantly checking up on these charities, constantly running site visits. They are doing the work that none of us could really take the time to do. Um in order to make sure that our philanthropic donations are doing what we want them to do. So it's a great 
organization. You know, GiveWell, I, I've said this before in in the in the tr- sort of truest love for these people. They are my favorite spreadsheet nerds because the nerdery that they engage in actually saves lives. If you go to GiveWell.org, you'll find all of their research uh, for free. You can sign up, make a recurring donation. It doesn't matter um, if it's two bucks a month or or way more like Tamler gives half of his income. <laughs> not, not quite. Uh, yeah, you can donate directly through their web website. They charge no fees and take no cut of it. It goes directly to the charities that you're supporting. Yeah. So thank you to GiveWell.org for sponsoring Very Bad Wizards. And thank you to all the listeners who have gone to GiveWell.org to keep promoting the good that they're doing. Okay, so the third rabbi, the very, very famous Rabbi Marshak who he's had so much trouble getting in to see. He even goes to see him uh, once and uh, he's (laughs) the secretary just, you know, studio 54s him. He says, no, you can't get in. Even though he sees him doing absolutely nothing in the back of his office. And she says, no, he's busy. He's thinking, He's just sitting there thinking. He finally does get to see him. No, he doesn't. No, his son sees him. The only Danny gets in to see him. That's right. After his bar mitzvah. And Danny goes to see him. The, the, yeah, Larry never gets to. And the rabbi recites to him uh, lyrics from, of a Je- Jefferson Airplane song and then gives him back his Walkman, which was confiscated at the beginning of the movie. Which contained the $20 that we didn't say, the $20 that he owed a bully from his neighborhood. This is what I mean where I was the, the received with simplicity. Like, that's a crazy scene from Danny's perspective. He is stoned. He is going to see this rabbi who is reputed for his wisdom and life experience. And he's supposed to get these words that will affect him for the rest of his life. And instead he gets Jefferson Airplane lyrics and his Walkman back, and he doesn't ask any questions. He just takes it, you know, and, and kind of smiles. Um, and all the rabbi tells him is, be a good boy. There's some point where he's, was it when he's trying to get in to see Rabbi Marshak, where he says, I've, I've tried to be a serious man. Yeah. Right, he can't, he can't actually say that he's a serious man. But what, what do you think that means, a serious man, in the context of this movie? Well, since Sai was the one who was saying it first, I don't think it's meant to be to be taken literally. Like I don't think we were supposed to see Sai as really a serious man. Right. He's called that at the funeral. By the rabbi. No, but Sai described himself as a serious man. He did in the dream. In the dream, that's right, in the dream. It, it could just be a decisive, not necessarily meant to be complimentary, for sure, because Sai is a repellent person character. And and one theme of this movie throughout is there's the unpredictable relationship between who you are and what happens to you. So Sai gets killed all of a sudden, you know, and and we should get to this, but at the very end of the movie it's entirely unclear whether all of those things that happened at the very end, the phone call from his doctor, uh, you know, that what's going to happen with his son is a sort of punishment for Larry uh taking the bribe or was it going to happen anyway? And in fact, there's even a whimsical thing where the phone call from uh, the doctor telling Larry he presumably he's going to die isn't when he gets in to see, it's when he adds the minus. And I was thinking, why is that, right? The bribe, he took the bribe with the C, nothing, and then he adds the minus. 
So one idea is it's just random. Like this is a coincidence, which the movie encourages you to encourages you to think that that's eminently possible. But the other I thought was he almost took a stand there. I'm 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 taking the bribe. I'm going to use that money to get my brother help by through this lawyer, and I'm going to give the kid the C, which is what he paid for. But then he can't get himself to fully dive in and so he gives the minus as a kind of hedge so he's being punished for not fully committing exactly it's like a for hedging yeah i like this interpretation that uh that it was his indecisiveness that actually warranted the punishment if he would have just done it, it would have been fine and in his dream sequence larry uh dreams about using that money to help his brother escape to canada um, and there is what is actually a tender scene where he pulls out the money and he you know, is on a little boat. I, I guess back in the day you could sneak into Canada uh, if you knew the, the right route. And, um, and, but his brother also has been accused of, of being a pedophile, right? That's what they implied. Solicitation and sodomy. But I don't – like it's not totally clear what he's meant to have done, but yes – you know, I think that he's imagining using this money for good in a way that, that had he just been decisive, taken the bribe, given the grade, maybe he could have done that. And actually, but in the dream, that's exactly when his brother gets shot. So, so I'm not quite sure what, <laughs> whether there's anything there, or whether it's just a string of like, he just doesn't believe that anything can go well. Well, in his dream, he takes actions, but it doesn't like it's it doesn't work out like in that case they're shot maybe it represents his fear of taking action and with the wife he dreams having sex not with the with the neighbor and just as they're reaching completion he's all of a sudden in a coffin and Sai is slamming it shut on him so it's like yeah i think it's his fear of taking action so there is, a, as a general, I think that the general, do, like a person who's doing nothing, this is what Larry is. It is interesting that sometimes it's very clear when he says, I've done nothing. Sometimes that is exculpating, right? He's, he's trying to get out of an accusation that he's done bad. But sometimes it's very clear that it's, he should have done something, and so I, I, it seems as if, you know, what they're saying is like, he's like a chaotic neutral agent, like doing nothing in doing nothing. You will do good things sometimes, but by accident, like you're, you, you don't get credit for, for not having harmed somebody. If, if this is just coming from your general inability to act. Sometimes the, the record of the month will be good, but sometimes it won't. The other thing I wanted to read to you guys is I looked up that that song, that Yiddish song. You know, the one that's playing in the background sometimes? Yeah, that he would he would lie on the floor and listen to. And it's in Yiddish, but there was a translation. You can find this on YouTube. We'll put up a link to this. I'll just read uh, the first two verses. Oh, how many years have passed since I've been a miller here. The wheels turn, the years pass, I'm old and gray. These are days I want to remember. If I had a little happiness, the wheels turn, the years pass, and I don't get any answers. I heard it said they want to drive me out, away from my village, away from the mill. The wheels turn, the years pass, without an end, without a goal. Where will I live? Who will care for me? I'm already old. I'm already tired. The wheels turn, the years pass, and with them also go the Jews. 
I felt this way of when we when we talked in depth about the Big Lebowski is that this is a string of a string of events that like happened. You know, maybe at best you can just have this attitude of let things happen because shit's going to happen anyway. But it does strike me as we in in trying to interpret this is this just the Cohen brothers being. Uh, at their ultimate level, just absurdity, like existential absurdity, and and we shouldn't take much from this. Is I think there's a lot of absurdity here. I don't think we're not going to succeed if we want to take a, a sort of simple. So the moral of this is, you know, one should act. One should not be a doormat. Sai Sai acted. I don't like. We're not going to decode it. They make it absolutely clear that we're not getting any answers about their intentions or. The movie is such a puzzle in itself with a lot of tantalizing possibilities. But again, like we're not getting any answers. I do think if there is a positive message, it is like find a golden mean between Sai and Larry. Like they are both cautionary tales of two ways not to handle life's unanswerable questions. But then how to handle it, we don't really get any any real sense i don't think from the movie i agree no life advice here <laughs> I'm, I'm, I'm like the big lebowski which is literally a training manual uh, so i mean i guess that that as as a goal the art can be to just get you to feel this absurdity about life but the other goal is also it seems an aesthetic, an aesthetic uh, communicating a certain aesthetic about the grotesque i don't know you know this i can see why proud jews not like you you guys but proud jews might think that this is an unflattering depiction that shouldn't shouldn't be the way that they're portrayed can can i give a like because i said i didn't feel that way I thought at the the scene, the bar mitzvah scene, and also the scene with the all who we haven't talked about, but the leader of the tenure committee, who would come talk to Larry every so often, and those scenes are very funny. Nothing to worry about. We don't even consider these things. Just wanted to let you know. <laughs> Just the bar mitzvah and the look on people's faces when the the son finally gets uh, through his his. Parsha and and the, the conversation with his sister, if that is his sister, about uh, these Jewish fables and the tradition, and we don't have to do it alone. We are we can puzzle over these questions together, and the the ritualistic aspect in this bleak universe that is something that stands out as quite positive, and the. The problem is often when people just use the rituals without puzzling over the questions like like Sai. He's getting the get without asking sort of why is this okay? But I think you do get the other side of it, which is this is we're bringing everybody together to honor this young boy through this ceremony and that's a very positive experience or at least it's potentially a positive experience in a world with no answers. It's not an organizing principle, but it's a way of moving forward. So, I mean, another thing you could also say is that nobody looks good in that movie. The very few non-Jewish characters, there's the the guy at the teeth. 
who was not portrayed as an attractive man. <laughs> who cares about him? There's, that's right. There's his, his, you know, insane hunter neighbor. Yes, it, it does have some features that you could find appealing. But at the physical level, how these people are filmed, how they were cast, it, it can, it's no accident that they look so bad. It's no accident that 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 um, Larry's brother has David. What do you call it? A, a some sort of a sebaceous, sebaceous cyst? cyst. I mean, come <laughs> yeah, on. That he, that he drains with a machine and like a plastic tubing, medical tubing. Con- he's constantly draining it. It's like you don't know how how much pus is in there. It's like you know mountains. Uh, the way that I saw this is you know not to speak to whether it's flattering or unflattering of Jews. It it seems like. This could be the eyes that you have when you're a kid and you see old people around you. There's a lot of grossness that you notice. You you see their ears. You see their nose hairs. You know, the things that they do to care for their bodies that happen to us when we get old are foreign and gross and distressing. And it very much feels like this is from the eyes of the kids remembering these this cast of characters yeah it's interesting you're, you're right it could be the way another way to look at it is, is how you know how an 11 year old or 12 year old would, would look at the adults around them and even and like the the hot neighbor you know that she's the one exception and you can see the kid uh spots her in the bar mitzvah scene and i it's it's almost like that inspires him to yeah that jolt that jolts him out of his high yeah that's an interesting way of looking at the movie is it's kind of through the the boy's perspective i don't know like how far that could take you but it's it's really interesting the 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 sister who we've barely talked about she mostly washes her hair I love I love that line. There are apparently a number of steps involved in this. <laughs> so I don't know. I think the la- the last thing that I have to say about this movie is something so that I that I alluded to at the beginning, which is that I found it to be much more humorous. If you watch it, maybe you tell it sounds like you had a similar experience. Like maybe the first time I watched it, I was actually sort of moping already, um, or maybe in a, some some sort of not not happy state. And it seems like a depressing, like bleak view of human existence, especially there's no answers. The the film cuts off with this tornado that we mentioned at the beginning, the very last scene. And I don't know if there is any meaning to to this last scene where the tornado is coming and we see the bully's face for the first time, but it cuts off right there. And is that punishment for Danny for listening to his Walkman after the rabbi told him to be good? We don't know. Is he finally seeing the the face of of the demon <laughs> or something, you know? Or God. Or God, the face of God. I mean, in Job, God is in the storm. So I thought that was sort of a clear allusion to, you know, when God finally gives his non-answers to Job, he comes in a storm and he just tells Job, like, who are you to ask me questions? And, and that's that. And And maybe it ends there. Um, because why why give the answers? The answers don't mean anything anyway. I think we could agree that this is a film that needs a sequel. A, ser- a serious <laughs> man, too. <laughs> Seriouser. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's, this, is, this resolve a lot of these issues. You know, this is give us some clarity. Answer every question. That would mean a yeah. lot. <laughs> Uh, all right. Well, I'm I'm out of analysis. On that note, um, 
Thank you, Paul, for joining us. Thank you for having me on again. Always a pleasure. Yes, thank you, Paul. Join us next time on Very Bad Wizard.